Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you need to open up to the book of Zechariah. So you can start in Matthew and turn to the left, and you will get to Malachi and then Zechariah. If you're just joining us, welcome. It's a little unusual series that we're in. Uh, We typically go through books of the Bible verse by verse, but we decided this time to do uh, entire books in one sermon. So we picked the 12, which is the 12 minor prophets. Historically, it was called the 12 because they're all written on one scroll. And so these are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And we are in the second to last minor prophet, the book or prophet Zechariah. And the name Zechariah means the Lord has remembered. And as we go through any of these books, uh, it's important for us to remember that each of these minor prophets, called minor because of their size, not because of their significance, but each of these minor prophets are part of a much larger narrative that we frequently refer to as the story of God. The story of God is made up of 66 books. That would be all the books of the Bible, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, but it all tells one large story. I was formerly an English teacher. I love stories. Uh, I don't necessarily uh, do well with movies. Uh, I like to get to the end. I'm a spoiler. I've told people many times I fast forward movies with the subtitles on just fast enough so I can read faster than they're actually moving through the story. I don't like the car chases. None of that stuff excites me. Just the story. I like stories. I like the setting of stories. And just like every good story, the story of God has all the elements of a good story. It has a setting, a background, it has characters, it has heroes, it has villains, it has relationships, it has conflict, it has all kinds of events that unfold through various chapters, literally and figuratively, uh, that are of different variation. You have chapters that are quite dull. Uh, If you read the Bible, you'll read genealogies, which get boring pretty quickly. You'll read building or architectural plans. You'll read listing of geographical boundaries. They aren't the most exciting chapters to read. But then there are those that are quite exciting. There are those that are disturbing. There are those that are quite violent. There are those that are beautiful, poetic, comedic, and, of course, tragic. But with every good story, there is one large driving main idea, one great purpose to all of it, and it is no different with the story of God. And so what happens is, taken alone, these 12 minor prophets as we've seen, can feel rather dark, pretty gloomy, depressing, if this is the only story that you read. But that is no different than our own stories. If you focus just on one chapter of the story of our own lives, it might seem quite dark, might seem quite disturbing or or upsetting, uh, or really exciting if it was a great chapter. But that doesn't give us the full story. And so it is with the Minor Prophets, Uh, You have to read them and understand them, certainly within their context, but within the context of the larger story. Now, the minor prophets are continuing or part of a longer story that has to do with kind of one big theme, but particularly in three expressions, the people of God, the place of God, and the presence of God. So people, place, and presence. Now, this story about God, his people, his place, and his presence began thousands of years before anything was written down in a garden, a place, if you will. 
And God had planted a garden, an area that he cultivated on the globe, and he put his first kids, Adam and Eve, there to care for it, to manage it, and to really extend God-centered culture across the globe. And it was in this place where his people were that God made his presence felt. And we read verses like Genesis 3.8 and we maybe perhaps don't feel the weight of it or the, the beauty of it or the joy of it that at some point God was present with his people. It says he's, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, the cool of the day. He was there in tangible and real ways. But we see in this particular verse that man and his wife were hiding. They were hiding themselves from what? The presence of the Lord. And they were hiding because they had sinned. They had disobeyed His Word. And as a result, there was all kinds of brokenness that happened and all kinds of separation. Yes, between man and his God, but also between man and his wife and man and creation, all kinds of separation. So much so that God fully separated Himself from His creations and He pushed them out of the garden He had created. Now, the story of God is essentially, and I'm simplifying, essentially about a return to that paradise. To get back into what was lost and again dwell in the presence of our Creator in fullness and satisfaction and joy. Now, the last book of the Bible gives it away, right? So I'm going to spoiler. If you've never read the book of Revelation, here you go. But I always spoil stuff. If you don't want to know the ends of movies, don't talk to me. I will tell you and I expect you to tell me. But I'm going to tell you how the story ends because the beauty of Scripture is it gives us a picture of the full story even if we're still in the middle of it. And the book of Revelation, it tells us in Revelation 21 about how it all ends. It says the new heavens and the new earth and there was the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's this and that. And the sea was no more. And John continues, he says, he saw the holy city, a new city, a God-centered city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And verse 3 says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's where everything is headed. Where, once again, God's people will be in God's place, and they'll be dwelling in the glory of his presence. But we're not there yet. Right? We're in the middle of this story. And the minor prophets ultimately represent the middle of the story, or at least the middle a little bit earlier than where we're at today, but it's still on the same plot line, right? It's still going towards this end that we see in Revelation. Now, as Mike shared last week and we've referenced several times, God began not just in the garden, but outside the garden. He prepared a place for his people. We call it the promised land. And he brought his people out of slavery into the promised land and he provided them a way through which he could dwell with his people. It was called the tabernacle. It was portable. And wherever they went, they set it up according to how God said, and his glory would fill it and be awesome, and they'd be like, no mistaking where God was. That is where he was. 
And that temporary tabernacle, once they came into the promised land, became permanent, and it became the temple that was built by Solomon. Now, due to their sin, where we're at right now in the Minor Prophets, they had lost both. They had lost their land, and they had lost the temple. The people had been exiled by foreign enemies, first Assyria, then Babylon, and eventually Persia came and conquered Babylon, but they were not in the place that God had made for them. And the presence of God had been removed. I was seen in the prophet Ezekiel where God's presence left the building, literally and figuratively. And ultimately, the temple was destroyed. So there was no people, no nation, and no temple for God to dwell in. But the story was not over. As they sat in exile for 70 years, eventually, God stirred in the heart of a pagan king and he sent them back. And they returned to the place that God had given them and they began to rebuild the temple where his presence once dwelt. And the historical book of Ezra records this moment when this happened, this time period when this occurs. It's a book of history, you should read it. And as they returned, they got back, they were fully funded, they had everything they need, and they began to lay the foundation of the temple. They immediately built the altar, started doing sacrifices immediately. But then they began to build the whole temple, and they laid the foundation. And when the day came where they did this, they had a basically full worship service. They were super excited. They says they sang responsively, praying and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. They had just come out of exile. Everything that was is starting to be rebuilt. And they shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And you read later that the old men are crying, and the young men are singing, and they can't tell the difference between the two because it's so loud. And some are weeping about what was, and some are rejoicing over what's going to be. But the foundation's laid, and they start to rebuild. But soon, as you read in Ezra, you'll see things got difficult. Things got hard. They got hard because there were some enemies in the land who didn't want to see the tabernacle rebuilt, or the temple rebuilt, didn't want to see the people restored. And so they started persecuting, started writing the king letters of opposition, and slowly the people ceased working because it was too hard. And in time, as we saw Mike share with us, they became distracted with the busyness of their own lives, with building their own homes, and the commitment to rebuild the house of God all but vanished. And it was like that for 18 years. Just a foundation laying there. And God sends two prophets at about the same time, one named Haggai, and one named Zechariah. Haggai shows up first. And Haggai shows up, and as we saw last week, he charges the people, like, you've got to get your priorities right. First things first. You guys got all your homes and your lives and your families all taken care of, and you have ignored God's house. It was a call to prioritize the place of God in their lives. It was a call for the people to rebuild and then Zechariah shows up, and he's not talking about rebuilding. Haggai, Haggai called people to rebuild, and Zechariah calls people to return. 
to return. In the first verses of Zechariah, we see this. The very first thing out of Zechariah's mouth after Haggai said rebuild, they commit to rebuild, they start to rebuild, then Zechariah shows up and says, the Lord was angry with your dads. And he goes on and says, therefore say to them, thus declare the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me, and I will return to you. He further says, return from your evil ways and your evil deeds. Zechariah basically begins by reminding the people how they got into exile to begin with. So consider this for a second. Their dads, their fathers, their parents, they had the law of God. They had the altar They had sacrifices. They had priests. They even had the temple. And yet, what happened? They were sent into exile for their sin. So Haggai has encouraged them to rebuild everything. They rebuilt the altar. They're rebuilding the temple. They're going to reinstall the priesthood. They're going to start sacrifices. And yet God says, even though you've returned to the place, you've returned to the work, you are doing what you're told, return to me. It seems as if living in the place of God, and even during the work of God, is not actually the same as being in the presence of God. You can be gathered with God's people. You can be doing the work of the ministry, and yet God can still be far from you. This is what Zechariah is most concerned with. They're going to have all this stuff. They're going to have the building. They're going to have everything. But he wants their hearts. And so the message of Zechariah is ultimately about entering back into the presence of God, even while you're in the place of God. It's about going beyond just religion, the emptiness of routine and tradition, and actually entering into real relationship and intimacy with a God who can have relationship because he's personal. It pushes on all of us because many of us get stuck in the process of doing. We struggle with being with God. Unlike Haggai, though, whose prophecy is pretty simple, and what I mean by that is pretty linear, like he says this, do this, and it seems pretty easy to understand. Zechariah's message is like complex and cyclical. It's like 14 chapters, not three, and it's like reading it this week going, Holy smokes, how are you going to preach this in one sermon? It's confusing. It's complex because it has eight different visions, four different messages, two different oracles. It's cyclical in that the eight messages repeat themselves in pairs, the same meaning. So I assure you, if you read it like I probably first did, you go, I well, what the snarf this means. This is confusing, and so my hope is to maybe clarify as best I can under this umbrella, this idea that it's about entering into God's presence. If you remember that Zechariah is about entering into God's presence, you see these visions reveal the things that hinder us from being in God's presence. You see that, that there's things in us and things outside of us, things that we have done in the past that that causes us to fear entering into God's presence. And ultimately, Zechariah at the end points us to how we actually are able 
to enter into the presence of the Lord where he plans for us to be. So let us consider these eight night visions. I'm going to go through them rather quickly. I'm not going to go through each one. We kind of have to do it this way. So I'm going to talk about the first and the eighth vision because they're the same, though they're different. So if you go through your Bible, most Bibles will have it listed, first vision, eighth vision, whatever. I'm going to begin with the first vision. It's in chapter one, and this gives you a sense of what I mean by visions. He literally, in the night, had a vision. Whether he's dreaming, whether it's just showing up like a TV screen, who knows, right? He's having a vision, and it looks like a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a glen, and behind him were red sorrel. I had to look that up. It means brownish. I'll use it all the time now, right? And white horses. All these horses, these men riding around. He says, what are these, my Lord? Great question. The angel who talked with me said to him, I'll show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, This is the patrol, saying, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. All the earth remains at rest. A similar vision is shown in chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. It uses chariots. So just chariots with horses, same kind of idea, same words that are spoken. We patrolled the earth and we find it at rest. And it describes God's scouts going out, surveying the earth, particularly his people, going, what do I see? This is providing the setting, the background for everything that's going to happen and what he finds as the people are at rest. And that doesn't mean sleeping. doesn't mean relaxed and things are going great. That means at ease in a bad way. They're comfortable when they ought not be. They are doing nothing when they ought be doing something. He sees them still and standing when they should be moving and walking with the Lord. As Haggai had prophesied, their priorities remain out of order. Men are actively committed to many good things, and many of us are. But they are not as committed to God things. Men are living their lives apart from God's presence, even though they're in His place, even though they're doing the work of God. And the scouts report that God's people, who were once passionate, you remember when you were once passionate? They came back to the land and they were excited. Yes, we've returned. God's freed us. He is faithful. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's rebuild. Let's do this. Stops after a year, 18-year break. I've met many brothers and sisters in Christ who have had long 18-year breaks where their passion for the Lord has faded for many reasons. So the patrol goes out and finds a people once passionate, once pursuing God's presence, now quite apathetic and quite passive. And so Zechariah is stirring them as Haggai was those are the first two visions. As you go on, the second, really there's four visions in two sets, visions two and three, and visions six and seven. Visions two and three and six and seven, collectively, they identify different obstacles to the rebuilding, different obstacles that have come and are really hindering their entrance into the presence of God, even though they're in the place of God. 
And the first set talks about external obstacles, things outside of the individual, outside of people that hinder them from getting into the presence of God. And then the second set talks about internal obstacles that hinder us from entering into the presence of God. And as we think about our own relationship with God, I assure you, in some place, in some way, you've been hindered with your relationship with God, with your intimacy with God, with your closeness with God, with your knowing God. I've heard the phrase more times than I can count, like, God feels distant. I don't feel close to him. Perhaps it's some of these obstacles. Externally, God's people had all kinds of obstacles. First of all, their temple was destroyed. Their worship was completely devastated and they were removed from their place. They've had severe enemies come and attack them, literally. They've had oppressors come, remove them. They've had oppressors come while they return. They've had persecutions. They have external enemies that in many ways, they probably are a little scared are going to return and God gives them assurance. He talks about the horns of nations. That'd be Assyria, that'd be Babylon, that'd be Persia. And he basically says, I'm going to terrify them and I'm going to cast down all of them. I'm going to take care of all the external things that, you are, that are attacking you or making it difficult for me to be with you. He even goes further to say, I'm going to put a wall of fire around the city in which I dwell with you. Now, the opposition is what had stopped them from rebuilding 19 years ago. And so it probably brings them great comfort to know God's going to take care of external obstacles in our life. And it's a moment for us to consider what are the external obstacles in our lives. We don't have enemies named Assyria or Babylon necessarily. We have enemies that go by the names of amusement and busyness and distraction. Our lives are very full. We have all kinds of excuses, responsibilities to our family, to our jobs. We've got all kinds of things to distract us and just amuse ourselves and divert our attention from what is most important. And many of them are good things. They're not necessarily bad things. But they become bad when they hinder us from entering into the presence of God and they actually hinder us from the things of God. And so... What we're talking about are those things that really kill intimacy with God before it even starts. And there are many. Probably different for a lot of us. The second set of visions continue to describe obstacles. And those are obstacles that hinder us from entering to God's presence that are from within. The shorthand for that is sin. He gives two strange visions. One's a flying scroll that's cursing. And one is a basket and a woman. And the woman is wickedness and he throws this woman in the basket and he covers it up and he exiles the basket out of the land. And he basically says, I'm talking about the sin in the land. Yeah, there are enemies on the outside. Sinful enemies on the outside have made it really difficult. But there's some sin on the inside that actually is also hindering you from entering into the presence of God. Reformer John Calvin was the one that said, our hearts are idle factories. 
We produce all kinds of idols that we look to to save us functionally, to give us satisfaction, to give us hope, to give us security. Ultimately, what we're talking about is this, unconfessed sin. Many times when people feel distant from the Lord, they feel like, man, I don't know my relationship with the Lord. It's because you have unconfessed sin. You're not living in the light, but you're pretending to. And the Bible clearly says that if you live in darkness and pretend you have a relationship with God, you're a liar. The pursuit of power, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of prosperity, these are things that keep us from the presence of God because they take the place of God. And if we're not vigilant about confessing that, because it happens to, we get captivated, all of us get captivated by idols. There's not a single person here that doesn't at some point get captivated by an idol. And it doesn't mean that you'll never be captivated or tempted. It means when you do and when you are, what do you do? Do you confess? Do you bring into the light? So there are internal things in the land. It's like, you guys are deceptive. You guys are manipulative. You guys are prideful. You got to deal with that. It has nothing to do with something on the outside. That's almost easier to blame. If you just took care of Assyria, thing would be great. How about your heart? Because that could be the biggest hindrance to relationship with the Lord. The last vision that we'll talk about is really the centerpiece of this wheel. So it's visions four and five. So you have these other visions kind of around it. And the hub of it is visions four and five. It's kind of the centerpiece. And Zechariah, instead of giving visions, he addresses two real people, or God does through Zechariah. One is named Joshua. He's a high priest at the time. And one is named Zerubbabel. He's the governor at the time. So if you just think about it, you've got a religious leader and a political leader. And these guys, more than anybody else, are responsible for really the rebuilding, the restoring of the temple and worship. But as much as these men are charged with leading these endeavors, the vision gives an interesting perspective of leadership. And what, at the core of it, Zechariah is trying to communicate, or God through Zechariah, is that there's only one who can truly make it possible for you to enter into the presence of God. And it's not a pastor and it's not a president. I say that because that's really what you're talking about. Religious and political leaders here. Spiritual and national leaders here. And it's amazing how many people put faith in men. Put faith in a pastor to save them. Faith in a president to save them. To fix all our problems. If we just had the right pastor, if we just had the right president, if we just had the right leader, and you know what Zechariah says? Every single one of them will fail. The fact that pastors are impure, the fact that presidents or those leaders are weak, doesn't seem to hinder our expectation of their perfection. And that is why we often idolize them wrongly. But it doesn't take but one failure, which all of them at some point will fail, for you to demonize them just as quickly. So it's interesting, the vision. So the way Joshua the high priest shows up, he speaks to Joshua the high priest, and the image you're given is that there's Joshua the high priest standing, and Satan stands to accuse him. And he starts just accusing him of how sinful he is. And the Lord doesn't say, no, 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 he's a good guy. He's righteous. 
He's one of the good ones. It says the Lord cleanses him. Acknowledging, yep, he's a sinful guy. He needs forgiveness, even though he's the high priest, like varsity level Jew, right? He still needs forgiveness. He still needs cleansing. He is still wicked. And then for Zerubbabel's part, he talks about Zerubbabel, and he basically characterizes him as pretty ignorant, almost powerless. And instead of telling Zerubbabel, you should know better, you should be a better leader, he basically just empowers him. So the priest he cleanses and the political leader he empowers, pointing all back to himself. And this is what he tells Zerubbabel. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit is all this going to take place. It directs our eyes away from hoping in men, hoping in programs, hoping in ministries, hoping in churches, hoping in presidents, hoping in leaders to go, where does my hope truly lie? How do I actually enter into the presence of God? It is going to be fully dependent upon God and not upon someone else. Entering into the presence of God is not about the right leader. It's not about the right church. It's not about the right methods, the right words, the right liturgy, things that we get so distracted by and put hope in wrongly. Entering into the presence of God is a spiritual work and it is accomplished through the Spirit of God by the grace of God. It's centered on God. Now, that message should give us comfort. Because it's not dependent upon them, it's not dependent upon me, it's not dependent upon having the perfect circumstance. Like, I can enter into the presence of God because it's dependent upon God, so I just need to turn to God. But even hearing that, we have hesitation. And why do we have hesitation? Here's why. Because we're afraid of who we are in standing before God. We are reluctant to enter because we know who we are. Let me prove it to you. We have way too much captivation with our past failures. Captivation with our past failures, dwelling with our mistakes, keep us from intimacy with God. We beat ourselves up when the Lord has not asked us to. There's a four-part message that as you read Zechariah, it seems like, oh, we just kind of derailed into something. This seems kind of weird. It's in Zechariah chapter 7 and 8. I'll just summarize it for you. But what's happened in the nation is that they've had some practices, things they've practiced. I've said this more times than I can count. Practice doesn't make perfect. It makes permanent. And when you begin to practice the same thing over and over again, if you're practicing the wrong thing, you get stuck. And so they've been practicing something for many, many years and it's become more important than the promises of God. The thing that I think about all the time, that I feel all the time, my natural actions all the time, the things I do over and over again have become more important than what actually God says. And so what happens is it's been four months since they first started. The visions have come. The rebuilding has begun to take place. And so men come as a temple is being constructed and they can see it. They come to the leaders, they come to the priests and they ask a question. And the question is simply this, should we keep fasting because 
our fasts were about the destruction of the temple. That's why we started to fast. And so since the temple is being rebuilt, should we keep doing that? That's a fair question, a good question. Historically, what you're talking about is two fasts that they actually practiced for the last 70 years of exile. God never commanded them to do this. They apparently developed on their own, and now they have a pretty good grip on the lives of God's people. And so God answers them. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned on the fifth month and the seventh, so they commemorated the exile and the destruction of the temple, was it for me that you fasted? Who are you fasting for exactly? That seems kind of like a cold question. But the truth is that these fasts had been instituted or commemorated to celebrate these two events, the exile and the destruction of the temple, two events that occurred because of their sin. Essentially, think about this, they have spent the last seven years, 70 years, Routinely remembering their failure. I had a friend of mine who um, made some decisions in his life. Big mistakes, particularly with schooling, and he had a major failure. And one day he showed up and he had a tattoo on his arm, a date. So what's that? That was the day of his failure. And he wanted to remember it, commemorate it. And he wasn't remembering it for good reasons. In fact, to this day, I would say his intimacy with the Lord is hindered because of what he sees all the time. And he looks at it. You see, sometimes what keeps us out of God's presence is living in a past failure that God never asked us to memorialize. Sometimes what keeps us out of God's presence is a past failure that God never asked us to memorialize. Not all of us put tattoos on our body. but Some of us do. And at some point, we have to stop dwelling on our past failures. At some point, we have to stop focusing and being captivated on all the ways that we disobeyed in the past and start focusing how we're going to obey now. Stop dwelling on what we feel about ourselves and start focusing on what God says about us. Yes, God had, and it is a right time to speak condemnation, to speak judgment. They were sinful. But now he is speaking restoration. He's assured them and is assuring them of his forgiveness. He is inviting them into his presence, promising restoration, yet they struggle to move forward because they're like, well, should we still talk about our sin that we in the past? And I'm not of the school, just so you understand. They were like, oh, it happened in the past, just forget it. Old movie called Memento says... You can forget your past, but your past can't forget you. 
There's a time and a place to, to work through your story and to, to process what happened, to name it so that you can tame it and move forward. These guys struggled to do that. They've had 70 years to do it. I think 70 years might have been enough time. And God says the same. See, we can be in God's place and not actually be in his presence because of our focus on our past failures. He says it's time to move forward. And perhaps, brother and sister, it's time for you to move forward. You know what that's called? It's called shame. Shame. And it is powerful. It is powerful. God does not want us to live in shame. Genesis 2.25 tells us where we're trying to head, right? That's right before the fall. Whether with one another, with God, naked and unashamed. That's where he wants to take us where shame no longer governs us. God says it's time to move forward. And the interesting thing he says to them, because he keep, brings up their dads a lot, and what was the biggest problem with their dads is they didn't listen to his words. They ignored his words. They dismissed his words. Now, God had warned the Israelites, but now he's promising the Israelites. And did you understand that your refusal to listen to his warning is just as disobedient and as bad as your refusal to listen to his promises? There isn't much difference. You're still disobeying his word. If he says, walk with me, you're like, ah, I struggle. I didn't ask about that. So he brings encouragement through Zechariah. And he's telling a reluctant people, this is what I'm going to do. Believe it. Take it to the bank. He says, behold, I will. I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. For thus said the Lord of hosts. Right? He's telling a people that are hard slow to believe him because they made so many mistakes before and God punished them rightfully before. He says, look, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath like I did, I didn't relent, I did it, I, I did exactly what I said, I'm going to do what I'm saying again. So again, I'm saying I have purpose in these days to bring good to Jerusalem. Yes, his warning should be adhered to, but so should his promises of forgiveness. So should his promises of joy. So, how do we enter into the presence of God fully then as we kind of wrap this up into one big idea? How do we, how do we get past these obstacles? How do we get past even my own fears and reluctance? Well, the last four chapters, and I won't hit them all, they all talk about the same thing, and that is the coming Messiah. And it's very explicit at times. You can see just Jesus in there, right? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble, mounted on a donkey? You know the one who was mounted on a donkey. He talks about this king who is coming, but also this king who's going to die. 
In Zechariah 12, it says, I'm going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced. They didn't understand that when they first heard that, I'm sure, but we understand that today. Speaking of the crucifixion of the King, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So they have this Messiah who's going to come and he's going to fix all things. He's going to be the true priest and the true king. So how is this all connected? Well, here's what you need to recognize. Even if they build, which they do, the temple, the second temple is rebuilt. Even though it's rebuilt, even though they have the altar and the sacrifice and the priests and the full temple, do you realize that inherent in the design of the temple is still a separation? There's still a separation there between God and man, between the presence of God in all His holiness and His unholy people. See, God's glory dwelled near them. Like you could see the glory in the tabernacle. You could see the glory. There was no mistaking. Oh, there's God. I know where he is. And then when Jesus Christ came down, it wasn't just God near us. It was God with us. But do you realize God wants even more intimacy than that? And it was made possible by Jesus' death on the cross. And he did way more than just atone for our sins. He opened a way into the presence of God. Did you know in Matthew 27, when Jesus breathes his last, what the first verse is after that? I'll show you. Behold. He dies and behold. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom. The moment Christ died, the curtain was torn. It wasn't some small little sheet. This was a four-inch, 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, four-ton curtain. took 300 men to carry it. It's a big curtain separating God's presence and the Holy of Holies from His unholy people. And when Jesus Christ died and declared it is finished, something only God himself could have done. He tore that curtain and made a way into his presence for his people. You see, all the work that needs or had to be done has been done by Jesus. The only way to the only God is through faith in the only Son, Jesus Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life. He suffered and died as the true priest and the true king and he reopened the way into the presence of God and every obstacle as we might have had. Every enemy, sin, Satan, death, all the guilt and shame, everything that would have hindered us from entering into his presence, everything that did separate us from his presence has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. So God is not near us anymore. He's not even just with us anymore. What the Bible says? He's actually in us. For those who believe, you don't know that you are God's temple? That God's Spirit dwells in you? Everything has changed. The presence of God isn't something we go seek out at a building. The presence of God isn't something we find in some experience with tickles and tingles. The presence of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And intimacy is born through Him. This is why 
at any time, we have confidence. Not fear, confidence. No obstacles, confidence to enter into the holy places. Why? Because there was a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain into his presence, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, then let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled and clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because we're really strong and we can do it. No, because he who promised is faithful. He does it. He is the one who gets you into his presence. He is the one who keeps you into his presence. So we don't need to hide from God like Adam and Eve did. Because there's no longer a veil hiding God from us. His presence, for those who believe, is in us and invites us knowing how broken and sinful we are. He knows all the guilt we have. He knows all the failures we have. He knows all the shame we have. And we don't have to fear confessing it in the light because he already knows and he delights to clean us and he delights to forgive us. We don't need to go to a temple hoping that he doesn't reject us. He is now dwelling in us, fully mediating our sin all the time, standing between us and God the Father saying, covered that, covered that, covered that. Having full knowledge of our sin, Christ died for us. Having full knowledge of our failures, Christ died for us. Having full knowledge of the failures you haven't even committed yet, Christ died for it. And for anyone who believes that Jesus died in their place for their sins, you are forgiven of all your sin, clothed with Christ's goodness and perfection the moment you repent and believe. He doesn't go, okay, well now that you've confessed, go get yourself cleaned up. He cleanses you of all your sin. Through Christ, we now may draw near to God, the creator of the universe with full confidence, knowing that nothing will ever separate you from his love. Nothing. I want us to finally observe that those who have surrendered to Jesus, those who have received salvation, those who have confessed that, that they are sinners in need of grace and have received, if you will, the love of Christ. Notice that he didn't take you away to be in his full presence. He left you here and sent his presence down to dwell in you. And he did that so that you might live for him. That you might reflect his glory. You might walk in a manner, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And he might be empowered to do the work of restoration in this world until you return to him or he returns to you and you actually are with him face to face. And what a glorious day that will be. Fully in his presence. Fully known. Naked, if you will, and unashamed. That's the message of Zechariah. Hopefully made a little more sense out of it for you. Let's pray.